Um, this is Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, I'd like us to read this together uh, if we could. This is the theme. This is the thesis verse of this book that we're studying, the book of Romans. So let's read this together. Um, on the count of three, one, two, three. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. That's what the book of Romans is all about. It's about this, this glory of salvation that's been given to all men, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, and it's received by salvation. Those who uh, are saved are those who have trusted in the Lord and put their faith in him. Uh, and we're going to be taking up, like I mentioned, we're going to be taking up this verse uh, or this book, rather, going through the first four chapters of Romans to really see this picture of where the gospel meets. Because we're this whole year, this theme for this year, 2023, is this. That we would have foundation, the foundation in our church uh, that's, that's prepared for growth. So we want to know as people of the Lord, what is it that makes somebody a Christian? What's well, the gospel? What's our church based on? It's the gospel. What makes us, uh, what makes this group of people here different than any other religious organization that's meeting? It's the gospel, this message of good news that's shared um, across the world through us um, to, to the world, this gospel. So if we're going to have a gospel foundation, where better to look than the book of Romans as it teaches us about it? So this morning, I think we're going to be confronted by this extremely simple truth that can also turn out to be extremely offensive or extremely um, challenging to us. It confronts us. It shocks our senses. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the character of God, just the character of God. Um, there's, no, uh, there's no more simple concept in the world that the God is one and that there's one God, yet um, you can never understand the depths of what that means. So let's this morning, let's pick up Book of Romans. We're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to read through 25, verse 18 through 25. And we're actually going to have a pick a few sermons out of this text. So uh, make sure you kind of mark this in your Bible for next week as well. We'll look at a couple, couple different aspects of that. But this morning, I want us to read uh, Book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says this, Romans 18, or 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God they gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. So these are some 
famous first words of Paul in this section. And the first thing I think we're confronted with in this, right on verse 18, um, right within the first four or five words is this. Number one, there is a God who rules over us. There is a God who rules over us. The first thing we're encountered with is this truth, that there's a God that rules over us. And humans, we need to know this truth. We need to know that there is a God who rules over us and we are accountable to him. There's a God that rules over us and we're accountable to him. And this is, like I said, a shock to our senses. Now to our ears and hear uh, those who come to church often and, and hear these truths speak, that's not a shock to your senses. But to humanity as a whole, for them to have this concept of, hey, there's something over us. Because we tend to be over most things, right? We see we, we subject the earth to what we want it to do. Uh, we, we have companies. We have um, people that work under us. We have animals that, that, that submit to what we want them to do and plants. We, the, the whole earth, this kingdom of earth, in some ways is submitted to us. We're seeing every culture in some sense sees themselves as we're, we're the pinnacle of creation. We're the rulers of this place. And when that truth, this truth of, hey, there's something above you comes, it's a shock to our senses if we're really honest. If we really think of the implications that that has on our life, you're accountable to a greater power. You are accountable to a greater power. There's something above you. Therefore, it matters how you live. If there's a God above you, then it matters how you live. And humans tend to push back against this truth. That's what this verse says. This is the wrath of God is revealed against Uh, or from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's push down, hide, not let it, not let it uh, impact them, right? If there's, if there's, we've all been in place in a situation in life when we we come to know of something, we just kind of push it to the side. It's the elephant in the room. We want to suppress that truth, that idea. Um, That's what humans do. We suppress this truth that God is above us. We suppress this because if there's no God, then we have, there's no accountability for us. We can do as we like. We can live however we want. Um, This plays out in a lot of different ways in our life. Um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, to give an extreme example, there was one murderer who, who talked about the, the reasons why he, was, he felt comfortable doing the things he, he felt comfortable doing. And he said, well, at that time I was an atheist and I thought there's no one above me. So if there's no one above me, why live within the responsible means? I can do what I want. And that's at his heart what sin is. It's, it's a rebellion against God saying, I don't have somebody above me, therefore I can do what I want. Uh, we all know that phrase, when the cat's away, the mice come out to play, right? When there's nothing, when there's no repercussions for our actions, then we'll do whatever actions we feel like doing. But what is your understanding? I want to ask you this this morning. What's your understanding of your accountability to God? Or what's your uh, response to the fact that God is above you? To you, is God like a cop? Is God like a police officer? Um, when we think of our accountability to a police officer, what's the, what's the famous phrase that you learn when you, they give you your driver's license and all the kids in the locker room start to say, what? No cop, no stop, right? Is that right, Chris? <laughs> we got a cop in our midst, right? So a lot of times the, the, when we obey a police officer, it's when they're around, right? We, we speed, 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 and then all of a sudden we hit those brakes when we see a, a cop sitting around the corner. Then we obey. We drive nicely. 
And then when he's outside of our rearview mirror, we go on doing what it was we were doing before. We drive fast again, right? Kids are crazy in their room until the parent walks to the, the doorway and then they stop. And they do they mind for a little while, maybe. Uh, but then when you're gone again, they go back to that same activity. So for you, when you think of your relationship to God and your accountability to God, do you treat him like a police officer? I'm only going to obey him while he's around. Right. I'm only going to obey him at certain times. Or maybe is God like a boss to you at work? Right. Our, our, our bosses at work, the, the ones that we work for as employees, um, they care what you do at work. But they don't care so much what you do at home, right? Well, when you go to work, you have to act this way, be there at this time, and spend your time doing these things. But when you go home, for the most part, that, 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 uh, that boss doesn't mind what you do at home. As long as it doesn't jeopardize the, the company or make you late for work. Whatever you do, that's your time. But when you're here, I want you to act right. Is your relationship to God like that? Do you treat God like a boss at, at work that when you're here at church or when somebody's you're around other Christians? OK, I'm going to act good. I'm going to act all this way. But then when I'm outside of church, that's my time. Uh, I get to act how I want, do what I want, when I want um, outside of that. Is God to you like a police officer? Is God to you like a boss? Well, I want to encourage you to think of God as God, God as God. There is a being who chose for you to exist. He brought you into existence. You wouldn't be here had he not chosen to make you happen. And there's a being who is concerned with what you do. There is a being whose eyes can see your heart and whose ears can hear your thoughts. There's a being who cares about how you live. He cares about what you do in every facet. He cares about how you talk to your spouse when no one's around. He cares about how you fill out your tax forms if you're honest. He cares about your browsing history on your computer. And he cares about the things you post on social media. There is a God who sees all of the things that you do and will weigh them because you're accountable to him. You, he created you. He cares what you do and you're accountable to him. Now that thought, that can be... That can bring some feelings into our hearts, right? Uh, that might bring trembling. That might bring uh, trembling into your heart to think, man, God's going to see all those things. God knows all those things. I'm accountable for all those things. Maybe it's humbling to you to think, man, there, there's something more than me, something higher than me, someone higher than me. Maybe it's comforting to you. I don't know. What, having somebody watch you to see what you're doing, that, that's weird when it's the government watching you, right? That's weird when it's, when it's an, like another adult watching you. But think about this. When you're a child with my children, a lot of times they'll say, come in the room, Dad. And I was like, well, I, I, I can't really play. I'll have to just work while I'm in there. That's okay. We just want you to watch us. We just want you to like be there. That's comforting when you're a child and your father's watching you and knowing every step is, is taken care of. So I think the fact that God, there is a God who's above us and we're accountable to him, that relationship can either be terrifying if you're not his or it can be comforting when you know that it's a father watching over you to take care of you. The God who watches over you, it can be either terrifying or comforting. He can be um, either someone who's watching over and you're accountable to every, everything that you do uh, or you can see him as a father who's taking care of you. So the first truth is this, there is a God who rules over us. But second, 
There is a God who reveals himself to us. There's a God who rules over us, but this God who rules and watches over us also shows himself to us. That's what it says in verses 19 and 20. It says this, For what can be known about God is made plain to them because God has shown it to them. Let's remember who Paul is speaking to in this book. He's speaking to a church in Rome, a church in Rome who's full of Jews and Gentiles, Jews who had left their homeland and, and were, were displaced in, in Rome, and also Gentiles, these people who uh, didn't know God before but now do. And he's speaking to this group, and he's speaking to them in some sense about the outside, about all of humanity. He's speaking about all of humanity, and he's saying this about them. God has made himself plain to them. This ultimate creator uh, chooses to allow people to know him. He shows himself to them in so many different ways. And we call this the self-disclosure of God. God self-discloses to us. He, he tells us who he is. He willingly volunteers information to us. You don't have to pry information from him. He willingly gives that information out for all to know. And just like a song says something about the songwriter and a story says something about the author and a painting says something about the painter, creation says something about its creator. And in this, in this verse, Paul tells us, as you look at creation, it tells you something about the creator. Verse 20 says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, can be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when we look out into creation, we study it and we analyze it, it points to a creator, uh, the sunrise, when it comes up and it has a palette of colors, colors that you don't even know what the name of that color is. It's it's combination of purple and orange, maybe some blue. And you're like, what color is that? The small seed that falls into the ground and has a purpose of growing up into a mighty oak tree. The way the earth can water itself with the water cycle of taking water into the clouds and dumping it on the places where it needs to be watered. Humans breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. This, per this place is perfectly fit for life. It points to a reason, a purpose, uh, that there's something behind it. If any of us um, were out raking our yard, raking up all the leaves and the sticks and all that stuff, and we came across a watch or a phone, none of us would think, oh, wow. This watch fell from this tree. This tree grew. We wouldn't think that, right? Because we would look at that and think something intelligent designed this item. This, this item isn't just some organic mass. It's, it's, it's designed for a purpose. And we can say that about our whole earth, about existence. All of this was designed for a reason. It points to the fact that there is a creator. But what does it say about this? This, this God who reveals himself to us in nature, we call this general revelation, that God in all of existence generally reveals himself to all people. What's the results of that? What are the results of God revealing himself? Well, this verse says this. Verse 20 says this at the very end of it. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. These first few verses are saying God's revealing his, his wrath against unrighteousness. And the reason that's okay for him to do is because he's made his eternal attributes known to all people through creation. All people should see and know there's something more than me and I'm accountable to him. I'm accountable to that something more than me. All peoples know that, yet they rebel against it. We're going to talk about the, the rebellion of man later on in another, in another uh, sermon. But just know this. There is a God who uh, 
who rules over us. And second, there's a God who reveals himself to us. And he does it here in this passage through creation. But I also want to show you another passage where God reveals himself, uh, not to these New Testament believers in Roman, but to Old Testament believers in Exodus 34. So if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So start with Genesis and move to the right. And when you hit Exodus, look for 34. And we're going to see in this place, and while you're turning there, I want to give you some background to this passage in particular. God had created the world and people rebelled against him. So in order to fix that, God chose a family through one man named Abraham. He chose this family. He said, I'm going to use this family, specifically one person from this family, to fix the world. And that family that God had chosen ended up being enslaved by the Egyptians uh, for many years. And God chose to, uh, not only did he choose a people through Abraham, he rescued a people through a guy named Moses. Moses led this group of people that God chose out into the wilderness, and he started a relationship with them. In the midst of this crazy time of the Israelites leaving, they were in the middle of, they would rebel against God just like their forefathers, but God is seeking to have a relationship with these Israelites. And in this moment, he's setting guidelines for that relationship. This passage, if you look at it, um, you probably have some title in your Bible. Above 34, it says like Moses makes new tablets. And this is God giving, in the midst of God, giving the Ten Commandments, these rules that the Israelites were to live by. So I want to read this passage for you. We're going to pick up in, uh, let's pick up in verse 6. So just know that before this, um, the people are standing by. He had, Moses had told the people, hey, I'm going to go up on this mountain. Nobody else should touch this mountain. Something holy is about to happen. And when that happens, God reveals himself to Moses as, he, as he's cutting these tablets. And in verse 6, God says this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So I'm going to pause there and I want to talk to you about this point that God is a gracious savior. He says in that verse, when he starts to reveal himself, he says, the Lord, the Lord. And if you notice in your Bible, the, the Lord, the Lord is in all caps. Um, it has L-O-R-D in all capital letters. That means that's God's personal name, Yahweh, that he's saying. He's saying Yahweh, Yahweh, this personal name. He's revealing to himself as, hey, this is my name. I'm not just an Elohim, not just a God. I am your personal God, Yahweh. That is my name. And he's this gracious Savior that comes to them. And notice the descriptions that he describes of himself. He says he's merciful. That's when you don't give somebody something they deserve, when you choose to show mercy. Another way to translate that word, though, is compassionate. And that comes over to our language a little different. Compassionate means um, when you think of Jesus, when he looked at the crowds and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. He saw something and was emotionally moved by them to do something about it. So Yahweh, this God, is compassionate. He's merciful, compassionate. He is gracious. It's when you have favor on somebody, when they haven't done anything to earn that favor. You're gracious to them. He's slow to anger. Man, if that could be said of all of us, slow to anger. Because I'm not that a lot of times. I'm not slow to anger, but God is. He's not quick-tempered and set off by small things. He's slow to anger. He is abounding 
in love. Think of your kid trying to fill a cup with a bottle of pop. And that, that, that pop, when it goes into that cup, ends up overflowing and coming out, right? Because they, they don't know when to stop. That picture of something overflowing, abounding, coming out of. That's the picture of God's love, abounding in love. What kind of love? Instead, fast love. A never stopping, unstoppable love. Steadfast, faithful. And he is forgiving, Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. This God, who is the creator and you're accountable to him, he is also gracious. He is gracious. He shows favor to us as our savior, not by anything we've done. He's merciful to us, not because we've earned it. He chooses to be that way toward us. He is a gracious savior. But as we continue on in this verse, he balances out this description of himself. In verse 7, or the, the last part of verse 7, rather, it says this. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, those verses hit us a little bit differently, right? Because we love the God is gracious and God is merciful, compassionate. That's good stuff. And now when he's talking about being just and, and delivering judgment to the third and fourth generation, children, uh, uh, children of fathers, we're like, wait a second, I'm less comfortable with that. But I want to encourage you before you go there, think about how these things are, are, are good, right? We see he's not going to clear the guilty. Don't you find this as a good quality in a human judge? The, a, a judge who gives, who, who acquits somebody who's clearly guilty we see that as an evil, immoral person, right? Uh, who, who would just let a murderer go, who would just let a rapist go. We would say that's not a good quality for them to be always merciful to everybody no matter what. We say, no, there needs to be a just punishment given to those who deserve it. And God in this saying, he's saying, I'm not going to clear the guilty. I'm not going to misjudge someone. I'm not going to not have all the facts and make a misjudgment about them. He's not going to clear the guilty. And if that's good for a human judge to not clear the guilty, it's even better that this cosmic God of the universe would not clear the guilty. God's eyes are open to injustice. There's a phrase that's kind of a pejorative. A pejorative is like, it's not a good term that we use in our culture right now for woke. You maybe have heard that word. The idea of woke just comes from my eyes are open to see things that are unjust. But the problem with humans is sometimes our view of what's right and wrong is skewed by our experience in our heart. Right? The things that I've gone through determine what I see as right or wrong. But God's not that way. There's nothing in his past that determines how he sees you now. He sees you with clear eyes, clearer than any eyes, including your own. And he sees your heart and he sees everyone's heart and he will judge rightly. You don't have to worry about him making judgments that are not right and clear. He will not clear the guilty. And then it says this. He says that he will um, by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. What that doesn't mean is that God punishes people for other people's sins. That's not what that means. What that means is children or fathers tend to pass on their deceitful ways to their children. You can say the apple doesn't fall farther from, far from the tree, right? It's that concept of these, these cultures that the, that the Israelites were surrounded, and even in our culture, we tend to pass on 
our sinful tendencies to our children. Your kids are going to do what you do. Um, they, they're just going to like the things you like and do the things you do, especially early on. And God sees that. God sees that perpetual pattern of sin that's passed down. So all of this brings us to this divine Old Testament mystery. It's this. There's an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. Tonight, there's going to be uh, at the Super Bowl, there's going to be some linebacker who's a stud who never misses a tackle. And there's going to be some running back who never gets tackled right. And when those two things meet, something has to give. Either that linebacker is going to miss the tackle or the running back's going to, to shake off the tackle. One thing's going to happen. In some sense, we have a, an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object in this passage. There is an unstoppable force of God's love who's never ending, steadfast, never going to stop. Yet it meets this immovable object of God's justice that never changes based on time and setting and situation. His justice is always the same. So this unstoppable force of God's love is meeting the immovable object of God's justice. And we see, I mean, you guys have read the end of the book, right? We know that on the cross, that that tension is handled. But let it just sit with you in this moment. These Israelites who are hearing God say, hey, I love, I'm, I, I forgive iniquity. I, I have unending love, never stopping love. But I'm not going to say somebody's innocent when they're guilty. Can you imagine that the thoughts that would go on in their heart? Like, how is that possible? How can these two things exist? How can God punish everyone who's guilty with right justice, but forgive iniquity? Because iniquity is injustice, right? How would you handle this? Because we tend to look at what God does in the world and think, I would handle that differently. I would do something different, right? We say, well, I'll just forgive everybody. But would you, would you really forgive everybody, even someone who's deeply offended your child? Like a murderer has taken your child, would you just say, ah, no big deal? We wouldn't do that. Or you might say, well, then I'm fine, then I'd punish all evil. Every evil act that's done, I'm going to punish it. You better wait a second because you're not going to exist very long if that's, the, if that's the standard. This is a conundrum. This is a dilemma that we're faced with in the character of God, that he is loving and and gracious and merciful. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He forgives iniquity, yet he doesn't leave iniquity unpunished. How does this, this, this dilemma in the character of God get handled? We're going to explore this again in the next few weeks, but know that the cross of Christ, we see these two attributes, God's divine love and his divine justice meet, and they don't fight, they hold hands. You don't have to reconcile friends and God's justice and God's love are holding hands in the Bible. They're not fighting against one another. These two things go hand in hand in the Bible. And we see that perfectly displayed on the cross of Christ when God himself becomes man to take on sin. The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin. So it's not some father punishing an innocent son. Is what we see on the cross. When we see Jesus became sin for us. He didn't commit sin, but he became sin and became that sin. So God is punishing sin deeply, yet displaying his love thoroughly on the cross. And God made a way for us to have a relationship with him. He's the God over you who rules over you. He reveals himself to you. And finally, there is a God who wants to be in relationship with you, with us. Are you here this morning and you, you might think, 
my relationship with God, it's, it's shaky. I don't know if I, if I have a relationship with God as you're describing this God. Uh, that's not my thoughts about God. Well, just know when we're confronted with this truth of who God is, that he, we're accountable to him, he's a ruler over us, that he is a gracious savior who loves you no matter what you've done, yet will punish, the, punish all um, iniquity. Know that this God has made a way for you to be in relationship with him. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 in Exodus 34. He says this, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. What was Moses' first response to God's revelation of himself? To bow his head and worship. That's what we are designed to do as humans. We're supposed to recognize God's amazing character and worship him and bow to him, to surrender to him. Have you surrendered to God, this God of the universe, to say, it's all you, it's not me? Have you bowed your head to worship? Notice what else Moses does in verse 9. He talks to God and he says, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff necked people. So Moses says, let God be with us because we need him. We're a stiff necked people. Stiff neck just means stubborn. And I know that doesn't describe anybody in here or anybody up here, but it might, you know. He says, God, be with us because we need you. Come in our midst. Be with us. And then finally, verse 9 says this, And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses' response to God was to bow to him in worship, ask that God would be in his midst, and that they would have a relationship with God, that God would see this people as God's inheritance. Let me ask you this this morning. As we're confronted with this truth, this character of God, the fact that God is there and you're accountable to him, that he's gracious and loving and righteous and just, what's your response to this? Is this a truth that you've submitted to? Is this a truth that confronts you where you are in your sin? Because remember, that, that your relationship to God, how you feel about the fact that there's a God is based on your relationship with him. If there's a God who's watching over you and you don't believe him and you don't agree with him, that's going to be a not a very good relationship. But if there is a God who is, you see as your father and who you know is going to judge you rightly and who has taken care of your sin on the cross through Jesus, then that's a different kind of relationship. So what relationship do you have with this God, this almighty ultimate creator? Well, this morning, if you would say, man, I know that God and I've been serving him for many years. Use the next few moments to worship him and sing to him the way that Moses did. Bow your heads and worship him and praise him, submit to him. But if you're here this morning, you're saying, you know, I never did submit to that God. And now that I see how amazing he is, I want to have that relationship with him. Well, you can have that this morning.